Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Last Thursday, we spoke with San Francisco Chronicle reporters about their year-long investigation into the city's SRO hotels and the way we fund supportive housing and homeless services. But we didn't feel like we had heard every perspective that we wanted to hear. So today, we're joined by people who work in and on SROs in San Francisco. We'll hear from workers, operators, and a researcher about what it's like doing the work of running an SRO and what supportive housing needs to succeed. This is the story of how 6,000 city residents get their housing and the many people who are doing their best to help them. That's all next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The view from outside San Francisco's SROs can be bleak. Most of them are in the Tenderloin, where many people are struggling. As the Chronicle investigation documented, there's wide variability in the quality of buildings, as well as the availability of mental health care and other services. We're joined first by two people who work in the city's SROs, and they're going to take us inside, providing their perspectives on what they need to help make SROs safe and actually supportive for their residents. Irma Teen Bolds is the front desk clerk at the Garland, formerly at the Baldwin, and a former resident of the Mission Hotel. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Thanks for for joining us. We're also joined by Eva Donjakor, a clinical case manager at HomeRise. Welcome, Eva. Hi, thanks for having me. Ermatine, I thought I would start with you. What's it like when you go into work? Just tell tell me about like how a day begins when you uh, sit down as a front desk clerk. Okay, formerly I am at the Garland. I'm, I'm not the Baldwin Hotel. Now, um, coming into work, you never know what you're going to walk into. We um, we get to work and things have changed from the time that you left the day before. Um, maybe someone has passed. Uh, that you really got gotten familiar with here at the front desk. 
uh, resident here. Um, there's a whole lot of different variety of things that go on here. Uh, lockouts uh, where people's been locked out of their rooms and things of that sort. And it, it's, it'd be really, sometimes it's really difficult and sometimes it's not mm -hmm. when you first come in, but if you have to deal with it, however it comes. Yeah. How, about, how do you think your experience as a resident kind of informs how you interact with residents uh, of the hotel? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a resident of this hotel. I, I, I work here. I'm an oh, no, no, no. Here. Former, but a former, like having been in an SRO before. Student. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I haven't been um, at the mission. I lived at the mission for like six months, but being there at the mission, it was me uh, setting a goal for myself and focusing on to move out, to get something better, a better quality of life where I didn't have to share a bathroom and things of that sort. It's mm -hmm. hope. It's giving people hope. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, my focus was, I mean, if you, you'll get lost here. You'll get really lost here in the mix of, of people that really have no focus or no hope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eva Donchikor, clinical case manager at HomeRise, tell us about what your day looks like. I imagine you have a bunch of different clients and, and walk us through what that's like. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'll just start out by saying, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience. You know, I'm not representing all mm -hmm. of HomeRise, but from my experience, you know, I'll, I don't know what I'm walking into, you know, like Ermantine was saying, uh, my clients are experiencing, you know, a lot of trauma past and present. And so I mostly spend my day meeting one-on-one -on -one with clients. So mm -hmm. in my job as a clinical case manager, um, I'm really happy to be able to, I can provide therapy and I also provide case management. So that can look a lot of different ways that can look like you know, sitting in a room doing what people kind of think of as therapy, um, talk therapy, or we could be going to appointments, um, applying to school. You know, a lot of my clients have long-term goals of like getting more education, finding jobs, mm -hmm. um, or also just dealing with the crises as they come up. You know, I could walk in to work and get a text from a client that, you know, they're, they're in crisis. Um, or, or something has come up, you know, they've been attacked or gotten in a fight with somebody else um, or just having a mental health crisis, you know, because most of the clients that I work with have um, some pretty serious mental health diagnoses. And so that just comes, it's like a roller coaster. Yeah. How do you think the housing that people are in kind of interacts with the other situations that they're in, whether they're mental health crises or or interpersonal conflicts? Um, I would say that the housing that they're in can sometimes make those already existing challenges worse. Um, I mean, I think most of my clients are just extremely happy to be in, in housing, mm -hmm. but there's also, um, you know, just, just things about the housing, like the fact that maybe there's not enough janitors. And so then it's, it's dirty and that sets off, you know, like an OCD reaction or um, there are people who are bringing drugs into the building or there's drugs in front of the building and they're trying to stay in recovery. And so that is a barrier to them mm -hmm. um, recovering or, you know, just the lack of, you know, I'm not there all the time. A lot of people don't have case managers. So people who are not on my caseload, um, you know, are, are reaching out to me for support and I only have so much time. 
um, to deal with whatever comes up. And I, you know, we do our best, but I think the lack of actual staff to meet people's needs uh, is a challenge. What does your caseload look like? How many people are you serving at a time? So I'm part-time and I have 12 people on my caseload. Mm. Um, and like how much time can you actually spend with those people in a week? Um, so we have, I really try and spend um, about an hour per week with all my clients. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that's not enough, but that really is kind of a lot. Um, I, I feel lucky to be able to do that because um, that's, that's not actually, yeah. you know, the norm, I think. Yeah. Ermatine, I wanted to ask you from your perspective, what's working about the SROs and the SRO system in San Francisco? Well, that's kind of difficult to answer because we're short of staff um, with the janitors. And um, I think it has a lot to do with the, the pay that they're not receiving. Mm -hmm. So we, we're short of, short of staff here. We're short of desk clerks. We're short of janitors because uh, I mean, the wages here, living wages here in San Francisco is really difficult. Mm -hmm. But the wages that we do make, we're not, we have to get more than one job to 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 live to live our lives um so it's it's really it's really um kind of difficult um to to be in this position but i'm uh, being here i get the opportunity to really help a lot of people and give them hope mm -hmm. and get a chance to talk to them and uh share my experience with my life um but as i said we were really short of staff where we have to bring other companies in for the janitors and the desk clerks also yeah I also understand that you've witnessed a lot of violence in your time working uh, in, in SROs. And I wonder what services are available to help you to deal with those kinds of situations. Well, I must share and, and say this. I did have a very experience um, working since I've been working here at this company. I was really trauma. And a, I had to uh, contact AFS to and take off and back up for a minute and take... Um, to get support with uh, the different, different therapists there at AFS. What's AFS? I'm sorry. Um, I can't I can't think of the um, oh, okay. abbreviation okay. for it right now off the top of my head, but it's the therapy, uh, a number for therapists that you can call when you work through, tra through trauma. And I went through it through, through the job here. Well, I found out about it and I, I had to take off and back up because it was really dramatic where it was a loss of life in front of me. Oh no. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Do you, you, despite having witnessed someone die in front of you, you've gone back to the work because you want to give people hope and, and share your experience. What do you, what do you need to be able to do the job that you want to do there? Repeat what you just asked me. What, what more? Yeah. What more do you need so that you can do the job and you can actually help support people and get them back on their feet the way you were able to get back on your feet? Well, first of all, as I said, the wages that we're making is really, um, we're just barely making it here. Um, we, uh, I am a shop steward in the, in the union and I get a chance to learn a lot about what's going on behind the doors here behind the desks and things of that sort. But I'm out here in the front line where I'm seeing the people that need the help. And it's really difficult to, um, as I said, to see when you come in and, and they're there when you leave and pass away when you, when you return uh, um, nine to 10 hours later. 
So uh, we need we need support first of all in our wages. We really need it where people want to stay and 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 help. And because they get attached to the tenants also, but not being able to have to get a second job to have this job, it makes it difficult for them to get used to them being around to support them and to be there for them also. Yeah. Eva uh, Donchkor, case manager in the in Tenderland, what do you what what change would you make to how supportive housing works in San Francisco if you could then you think that you think would best benefit the people you work with? I mean, I really want to echo um, what Ermantine was saying about just increasing wages, increasing the level of staffing that we have, because, um, you know, she's absolutely right. I, I remember, you know, going, being six months into my job and then all my, my clients were basically like, when are you going to leave? Um, because nobody stays and nobody stays because the pay isn't competitive with what the city is offering. Um, and, and I do think that, you know, I'm in the union as well, um, SEIU 10 to one. And I think that having a union is an important part um, of working in nonprofits, but it's also not the only answer because the management, you know, that we're in bargaining with, they can only do so much with the money that they have. And so I think, you know, zooming out and really, um, looking at the city budget and putting the money um, that the city has, you know, we're one of the richest cities and putting the money where our values are, um, which is investing it in the people who are working directly with these, you know, members of our community so that they can really feel supported. You know, I think it's called supportive housing and we really need to invest in the support that's already there because it takes a big risk to like reach out and trust the support workers to support you. And so, you know, it, there's even a barrier there in accessing the support. I mean, I know for myself, like, you know, just, just being in my own therapy, you know, as a therapist, you need to be working on your own mental health. Like it's scary to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and, you know, it takes time to build the trust with these clients um, so that they will trust you. And yeah. I've been at HomeRise now for a little over two years. And I feel like I've been able to make some great connections and my clients are making progress, you know, and, and healing is nonlinear, you know, like mm-hmm. there's ups and downs. Like I said, it's a roller coaster, but, um, you know, I, I just wish that there were more staff who could offer that. And I think that it's not just having more mental health professionals, like it really is expanding the support with the desk clerks and with the janitors because they, you know, they have an we're impact. We're going to have to stop right there. We're going to talking about how to make SRO hotels run well. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've been hearing about the on-the-ground challenges of operating SROs inside San Francisco with Ermatine Bold, the front desk clerk uh, in an SRO, as well as Eva Donjakor, a clinical case manager at HomeRise. You know, the SROs, these are single resident occupancy hotels. They're a major part of the city's supportive housing programs, and many of them are in the Tenderloin or a few are in Soma, and they really have been a major part of that system for decades now. We're, you know, supportive housing is something that researchers say does work despite all the challenges that we've been hearing if it's given the right resources and attention. So to find out how supportive housing should work, we want to add Dr. Kelly Ray Knight into the conversation. She's the director of qualitative research at the UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative, as well as a professor at UCSF. Welcome, Dr. Knight. Thank you for having me. We also want to welcome you into the conversation. Have you lived or worked at one of San Francisco's SRO hotels or nearby? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. And, of course, the email is forum at kqed.org. So, Dr. Knight, it's my understanding that researchers like yourself do you think supportive housing works with the right conditions? So what do we know that supportive housing needs to succeed? Yes, exactly. So um, as you said, I mean, housing first works, supportive housing works, um, in part because it's really hard, if not impossible, to address health needs without housing. So as we heard from, from Eva, we really need to get people into housing as the highest priority. And then once they're housed, we have multiple different models of care that can be effective. And those models of care really need to match the needs of, of the residents so and the environments in which, in which they're living. Um, so, you know, a few things that are just off the top that research supports is the mm-hmm. stewardship of housing environments that are trauma-informed and safe. Uh, so we need to be... What, what does that mean? Would, what, is, what does it mean Yeah, to what does trauma-informed trauma yeah. mean? So it means a recognition, again, with what Eva raised and also Ermitine raised around the trauma that residents have experienced in their personal lives and also experienced as a result of often years of chronic homelessness. So it's a recognition that things have happened to people who are living in, in these environments and we need to understand how to work with their trauma and recognize the ways that that trauma is informing their mental health, their ability to and comfort accessing healthcare services and other supportive uh, services and their substance use if they have substance use or substance use disorder. So it's meeting people where they are and recognizing those histories and then also designing environments that feel safe, that aren't um, falling apart in terms of their conditions, that environments where, where there are uh, compassionate workers who are supported and well-paid to be able to provide the services that they're trying to provide in those environments and uh, management systems that um, put the residents first and recognize the, the solutions are working with residents actively and hearing their concerns and responding to them. So I so heard, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, ahead. I heard three things there. Stewardship of housing environments that are trauma-informed and safe, compassionate workers that are supportive and well-paid and management systems that put the residents first. Do you think that those three factors, all of which take money, 
are we are we actually getting to that in San Francisco? Well, we have some good examples of research that supports that that's successful. So I don't think it's it's completely there um, in all of the housing environments that we have in San Francisco. But I can speak to a couple of different research studies uh, that I've done that where it ha- where we see that successfully working for residents. So first is um, in the area of overdose prevention, which we know is a really critical concern uh, in uh, housing environments, mm-hmm. um, SROs that have people who are paying privately, people who are on subsidies, and people who have more complete services in place, you know, sort of more advanced, um, more what we'd like to see permanent supportive housing look like, that, that we're, people are experiencing um, overdose in those settings. And so I was part of an evaluation of the program where residents were trained um, and supported in supporting other residents to uh, respond to overdose um, and reverse overdose with naloxone, which is a medication that's Mm -hmm. perfectly safe but needs to be administered quickly in the event of an opioid overdose, including for fentanyl. And with that training, what we found in that study was that the residents were empowered and motivated to do that work with support, that they wanted to take care of their their, co-residents in their building um, they wanted to, to reduce overdose deaths um, and take care of each other in ways that they already were, and that the building um, could the building could actively collaborate with them, and that improved staff relations with residents as well. It became a collective effort that empowered the residents, mm-hmm. and I think it's a very promising model for, um, particularly for overdose prevention and permanent supportive housing that should be expanded. This was a pilot. Um, yeah. And, uh, and we found really promising results. So that's just one example in San Francisco uh, that Irma, we should be exploring. Yeah. Ermatine, I wanted to ask you a question I didn't get to in the top, which is, can you tell me about the kinds of communities that do develop like within SROs, either ones that are, you feel like support people and help lift them up or that, or, or that have worse effects? I didn't understand the question. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, yeah. Can you tell me about the kinds of communities that develop in in SROs that you that you've seen develop? Either you know people helping each other out or or the reverse. Well, there there are some. You know, it, it's like a roller coaster with the different tenants because a lot of them are addicted, a lot of them are um, physically or mentally uh, challenged, and I, I have seen some from experience to get to kind of group together, but. The majority of the time, it's really hard to say, I mean, just to know, because it, it, it depends on how their day is going, how their evening went. Uh, as I, I work from eight to four. So when I get off at four, when I come back the next morning, eight o'clock, it could be a whole 90 degree turn in the building mm. or not. I mean, I never know what I'm walking into here, mm-hmm. you know, but, but I suit up and I show up yeah, because I, I have got a, a, a nut attached to the different, some of the different uh, clinics clients that's here and um as i said we're here to give hope at the same time um not only do our job but give hope while, while we're dealing with the different people I, as she said we can even meet them where they are that particular okay thank you yeah. uh-huh. you know doc, dr knight um the city has plans in place for adding you know detailed goals metrics requirements into contracts that the city makes with SRO operators by June of 2023, I believe. What do you think needs to go into those contracts to make sure that we're aligning the actual deals we make with our our hopes for supportive housing? 
Um, that's a that's a great question. I don't do specific research on contractual negotiations between the city and permanent supportive housing. So um, I'm not speaking from from my own research here. I think um, you know, again, I'll circle back to what are the what are the supportive services that are being provided that that really define supportive housing? And we know what those things should look like. We we have models where, you know, where social workers, case managers, and peers have collaborated together and we can see that people with serious mental illness and co-occurring substance use disorder, sort of people who have really significant challenges in staying housed and 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 very chaotic lives, lots of trauma, can stay housed. Uh, you know, 90% in a study that the Benioff Housing and Homelessness Initiative colleagues did in Santa Clara in permanent supportive housing for seven years. So the metrics that I would like to see is the is the use of evidence-driven models for what works in supportive housing and then offering those supports to the nonprofits that are contracting with the city. Mm-hmm. And then follow those metrics. We know how to do that. We have the research that exists. Um, so, uh, you know, follow, follow the evidence and then, and then uh, do metrics on that. I guess the other thing that's come up quite a lot is what, what are the experiences of the workers in terms of their wages and support? Right. And that's something that I don't think is, is tracked to my knowledge. Again, I don't do research in a specific area, but mm-hmm. that's something that keeps coming up again and again that I think um, the city should um, uh, pay attention to and support. It's a gap. So ultimately, the responsibility for oversight of the SROs, which are, again, these single resident occupancy hotels and making sure they help rather than hurt people. The the oversight really lies with the city of San Francisco. And we asked the city to come on multiple times, both last Thursday as well as today and in every way we could imagine to ask them to talk about the supportive housing programs. And they declined. Um, We are joined this morning, though, by the organizations operating those SROs. You've heard from two of the frontline workers already, and we're now joined by two of the directors of those organizations. Uh, They interface directly uh, with the city. First, uh, Lauren Hall is executive director of Delivering Innovation and Supportive Housing, that is to say DISH, and co-chair of the San Francisco Supportive Housing Provider Network. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're also joined by Randy Shaw. Randy Shaw is the director of San Francisco's Tenderloin Housing Clinic, uh, the largest operator of SROs in the city, also author of Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America? Thanks for coming on the show, Randy. Oh, okay. Well, Lauren Hall, let's let's start with you. We'll uh, make sure we get Randy on the line. Uh, Lauren Hall, what role do you think your buildings play in the city of San Francisco? Oh, sorry. Sounds like we just got... Uh, well, uh... So I'm uh, the operator of eight and soon to be nine supportive housing programs in San Francisco, the majority in the Tenderloin. I have two in uh, South of Market off of 6th Street and one in the Mission. And so my staff is with with Ermitine. Uh, we provide the front desk service, the janitorial, the maintenance and the general management of the program. And I think really our focus is on how do we support healthy communities? How do we provide opportunities for hope in our sites? I really appreciate Ermitine what you talked about where the role of the front desk staff and the janitors is incredibly important while having robust support services is needed, but really having staff that have the ability to build, to support our residents, to build strong communities where they know that they matter to us, that their lives matter. They've been treated so poorly by the institutions for decades. And I think that you know homelessness is 
a symptom of that abuse of that you know institutional racism that many folks are facing you know with earlier comments this morning before we came on was around you know african americans and how difficult it is to secure housing and that's you know that's that's why we're we're where we are and so really what's important is that we invest in those teams and in these sites so that our SRO housing is beautiful, is well-maintained, but that requires investment of real funds. Mm -hmm. San Francisco is doing an amazing job of purchasing new buildings and expanding the portfolio. But if we don't take care of the legacy sites, which are the ones that folks like Randy and I operate, we can't move forward and we can't provide the dignified environment that our residents deserve and, our, and or the wages that our staff deserve to provide this incredible life-saving work. Many of our staff have their own lived experience of homelessness, certainly their own trauma, as Irma mentioned, or, I'm sorry, as Ermatine mentioned, multiple jobs. And those, and the system is really reliant on their willingness to accept, you know, accept wages that none of us can live on. And I think our, 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 our work here is to say we have an abundance of resources coming into San Francisco right now and what do we need to do to radically shift how we fund supportive housing and what we think is an essential service. Essential services includes meal programs, it includes robust overdose prevention services as Dr. Knight mentioned. It requires staff that can be there and build those connections and give people hope. It requires deep investment in tenant leadership so that people feel like I matter my voice matters and it, and I'm inside now and now I can sort of get on with my life and I can have hope for a better future. So mm -hmm. there's there's much we can do to change Rand, this. Yeah, Randy Shaw, what do you think is working about supportive housing in the city? Well, I wanna say that the 101 Housing Clinic has been working to preserve and improve residential hotels for 42 years. Uh, we started the, I brokered the first two leasing programs, the ones that DISH became DISH, and then we worked with the Brown administration to make how, housing first connected to converting SROs to permanent supportive housing. And I have to say, contrary to what people may have read in other publications, San Francisco's residential housing stock, every SRO that's taken over for permanent supportive housing today is in dramatically better condition than it was before it was taken over. Dramatically better condition. All 23 of our hotels are significantly better places to live than they were before we took them over. So what's really the problem now, as Lauren pointed out, is for years, the city has not paid workers enough for, to get retained and attract quality workers. And particularly with COVID, all of our jobs are in-person jobs, mm -hmm. which is now the, you know, so you're asking someone to take a low salary for an in-person job that requires in-person attendance five days a week, doesn't work. And it's great what we're doing with permanent supportive housing in San Francisco's SROs. We're a national model, but when you can't retain staff because the salaries don't, are, are just inadequate for the expensive Bay Area, it, and then you know, last year, our board of supervisors approved a budget and there was cheering because we had new programs and everyone wants to start a new program. What we really have to do is fund the existing workforce so our existing portfolio can be sustained. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge because politicians, mayors, supervisors, it's really about the mayor, the supervisor and the controller who decides who gets money. And if you don't, if you want to put a press release out that you start a new program, that's a lot more exciting than say you raise base salaries for property management by 10%, right? right. We have that political visual problem, but I think given the publicity that's gone on, given the crisis since COVID, which has made attracting staff so difficult, we have rooms available. We can't turn over. We don't have maintenance workers, so we can't do room turnover. So rooms are sitting vacant. 
They can't, you know, we had, it's, it's crazy. So this is the time in the next few weeks, we're going to get a budget from the city and we have to make sure they've taken care of the property management and sports service staff positions so we can grow this great program. So, Randy, you know, the SRO system evolved over the decades, and there are these, I think what Lauren called legacy sites, that is to say, just not the new buildings that the, the city has purchased uh, very recently. Um, my question is, do you, you're not even getting the same amount of money that the new buildings are getting, that is my understanding, but you probably actually need more, right? Because the maintenance costs are higher and you need to be able to rehab these buildings, right? That is, uh, that is a great point. And it's because the city attorney is ruled and the, and the Prop C committee that when we pass Prop C to fund homelessness, it could only be funded new homeless sites. So they won't let Prop C money be used for the sites Lauren and us and all these other nonprofits run. I mean, it's it's really doesn't make it's also important to recognize that the sites that we're now acquiring due to the fact that the student housing of uh, in SROs is dead. We have sites like the Gotham, the Garland, which we are running and just the Diva, these tourist hotels because tourism is down. Mm -hmm. We're getting sites that already are in better condition than they were ever available to us prior to COVID. And that's an important point that 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 certain publications have overlooked is that the supply of hotels was very limited at one before COVID mm -hmm. and it just opened up. So you're right at a time when the legacy hotels are most in need, we're not getting any of the new resources. Yeah. We're talking about how to make SRO hotels, supportive housing and services for homeless people run well. Currently talking with Randy Shaw, director of San Francisco's Tenderloin Housing Clinic and authorization of Generation Priced Out, who gets to live in the new urban America, as well as Lauren Hall, executive director of Delivering Innovation in Supportive Housing, which people call DISH. And she's also co-chair of the San Francisco Supportive Housing Provider Network. We're also joined by Dr. Kelly Ray Knight, Director of Qualitative Research at UCS, ben, UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative. We're going to try and get to some of your calls after the break. We want to know if you've lived or worked at or in one of San Francisco's SRO hotels. The number is 866-733-6786. Sarah, a listener, writes, The supportive housing discussion this morning echoes discussions about the school system. How can there be any improvements until we put enough money on the table to make sure people can stay in the jobs and also money on the table to hire enough people? Otherwise, it seems we're just repeating the same things in circles over and over. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're kind of doing the second half of a conversation that we began last Thursday about SRO hotels and supportive housing in the city of San Francisco. And we're joined by a variety of experts, both operating and uh, studying these uh, supportive housing sites in our city. Randy Shaw, I want to give you a chance to last week we had San Francisco Chronicle reporters on the show um, and they have obviously been investigating the, the the state of supportive housing in the city. And as the largest uh, SRO operator, Tenderloin Housing Clinic Organization, um, a lot of those criticisms fell to you. Uh, in, in particular, the problems with building maintenance that they talked with residents about. And I want to, I guess, ask two questions because you've, you've already addressed it in, in part. One is you said that the stock is in dramatically better condition than it was before it was taken over for supportive housing. I, yeah, I'm well, willing to believe that. I think the question yeah, well, is, is it, is it good enough? Uh, do you think yeah. it's good enough? And what would you need to make it what it should be? You know, I'll have a point-by-point rebuttal of that entire fabricated story that completely misrepresented hotel conditions in San Francisco in my website, beyondcron.org, on Monday. So people should look for that. I I will go over every point. They had criticism of Tenderloin Housing Clinic from people we have never even identified as tenants in our building. Their main person they had talking about conditions was a woman who uh, has been had contacted, had, had been, uh, they, they went to the problem tenants, people being evicted for nuisance because they don't let exterminators in the rooms. The woman who led their story assaulted a fellow tenant. That wasn't in their story, even though they had information to them. So why the Chronicle decided to lie about the hotel conditions, there's a very basic way people listening on this show can prove it's all complaint tracking systems are online, the Department of Building Inspection. You can go to any of our hotels and track and check are notices of violation complied with? Are they issued? And you will see they're always complied with. And so there's a demo- there's a democratic demonstrative proof of what hotel conditions are. Now, people should realize the janitors that all of our hotels have, they work eight hours a day. If something happens, you know, we, we sh- if we don't have full-time janitors in hotels, there's problems that develop in between janitorial shifts. The city doesn't fund anything to deal with that. So this, if the city wants there to be uh, 24-hour janitorial, they could fund it, which we would support. But the reality is, is that series that Chronicle did ignored the reality of what, how homeless people in large buildings live and the challenges, as your guests other than myself have talked about. So we need to look at the low-income housing supply, what was available at the time. We, took, we have so many people, thousands of people whose lives were transformed we have a 94% retention rate in our hotel after one year. Why would people stay who've been chronically homeless in our buildings for, for over a year when they don't think it's safe to live there? The biggest age group in our population. Hey, Ray, we, can I ask you about that one? Just because that, that retention yeah. rate is, is a, a part of the story. You know, they said yeah. it was, a, it was yeah. a, a government report they were citing that tracked 515 tenants. Of, of that, 21% had returned to homelessness. A quarter had died while they were in the program. 
27% left for an unknown destination, which leaves about a quarter who had found um, stable stable homes. Well, so how, how, do, how, do, how do I reconcile that? I'll tell you, because they call it a negative that people die. The The biggest age group in Tenderloin Housing Clinic Hotels is between 61 and 70. That's an age group where people die. People live in our hotels, many of them, till they die. It's not an indictment of the permanent housing system that people are living there till they die. We have people, Gail Seagraves, who was with Benioff with the opening of the Bristol Hotel, died of cancer in, in the Bristol. Does that mean that we've done something wrong in the Tenderloin Housing Clinic? There's a nonsensical analysis of these facts. The reality is when we started supportive housing in 19, when we envisioned doing it in 1998, we anticipate a 70% retention rate given the difficult population. The mm -hmm. population has become far more likely to have substance abuse problems and mental health issues. Everyone would agree with that. And yet we still get a 94% retention rate. That to me is a sign don't listen to what the reporters say. Look at what the tenants themselves say, because you know many people go back to the streets. These are people who have been very distrustful of housing, but they've become believers. And we build communities in our hotels. We have tenant representatives. We have a Central City SRO collaborative, which builds communities. And in my story on Monday, I will be telling the stories that were not in the Chronicle story of people whose lives have been tremendously transformed by the positive aspects of permanent supportive housing. Wanted to follow up one um, last piece on the the death numbers. I mean, they did also match up records of overdoses and found 166 people fatally overdosed in city funded hotels. Not not just yours. I just want to make that very right. clear. But all the city funded hotels right. in 2020 and 2021, which was about 15 percent of confirmed overdose deaths. What could we do about reducing those, which are obviously different right. than just an age related death? You know, it's interesting. I, I mentioned to the reporters that I've mm. spent the last two years trying to get drug open-air drug dealing out, out of the tenderloin, and that's a major factor that leads people to become overdose. And they said, we're not interested in that. Then we want to talk about what the Tenderloin Housing Clinic can do. Well, the Tenderloin Housing Clinic is working to stop open-air drug dealing in the tenderloin, where, where we had double the number of homeless people overdosing in the last year. When you have open-air drug dealing, overdoses are increasing everywhere in San Francisco because of that reason. It's not just a crisis of permanent supportive housing. We do the best we can, but as, as Lauren pointed out, we don't, have we don't have a special drug counselor in our hotels. There's no funding for that. And you know, people may not realize that case management is voluntary. We've heard a lot about how you know, we need more services, but tenants aren't required to use services. It's available to them, but it's not required. So I would say end the open-air drug dealing in the Tenderloin, and you will see a sharp reduction in overdoses. Could I, could I and jump in there? Talk, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Randy, let, I'd love to talk about what we're doing around overdose prevention and supportive housing. I think, you know, as, as Dr. Knight mentioned, there is a lot that we this can do. This is Lauren inside. Hall, by the way, direct, executive director of DISH. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, my apologies. Go ahead, I, agree, I agree that there, you know, there's, there's always going to be challenges with folks who use with dealing. But I think what we really need to do is put the tools and the resources in the hands of folks who, who do use drugs, who do need to have safe, uh, you know, support. So what we're doing is we are... As, Kelly, as Dr. Knight mentioned, we're working with uh, putting you know, Narcan readily available for all of our residents. We're investing in peer response programs. There's a real barrier between staff and residents, largely because of the war on drugs and the way that people that use have been so 
you know, abused by the system and demonized. And so I think the level of trauma that our folks have experienced, substance use is a way that they cope with that. And so what we need to do is have emergency response systems, much like we would with a fire, that will support people for safety. And so that's having, you know, Narcan, which is mm -hmm. an overdose reversal drug readily available. We have systems where people can press a button and someone will come and check on them and make sure that they're okay. So there's a lot that we can do, but again, it takes resources and it takes commitment from you know the city, from the private sector to fund those resources to really be able to happen. Let's get to yeah, some. I, I just wanted oh, to so, go ahead. I just wanted a, a quick follow up on that as well. In terms, this of is Dr. The, Kelly Ray Knight uh, of yeah, UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative. Yeah, the causes of overdose, um, you know, that we're seeing both among people experiencing homelessness unsheltered and in housing have to do with the unsafe drug supply, um, and uh, and particularly fentanyl and stigma. Um, as, as Lauren Hall was, was pointing out in terms of people really being able to be supported appropriately and, and openly about uh, their substance use, their substance use needs and their risks. And to the question of voluntary versus compulsory, there is absolutely no evidence that compulsory drug treatment um, has, any, has, has had any success. So when we talk about people not being forced into, into services or into drug treatment, even the, the National Institutes of Health and the National um, Institute on Drug Abuse, the director um, is, is unequivocal about the, the, the lack of evidence compared to programs that offer compassionate, um, meet people where they are, offer compassionate support services and offer services that are more evidence-based. So I just Dr. want to be really clear about that. I, yeah. I think there might've been, I, wasn't, I was talking about just basic case management services in our hotels. There were a number of people in that Chronicle story who claimed that we didn't offer them services when we do offer, but this, we can't make, it's up to people to come to the case managers in our hotels to get services. I wasn't addressing mandatory drug treatment. Right? Got it, got it. Okay. Okay, let's bring in Rose from San Francisco. Welcome, Rose. Hi there, thanks for having me. I'm a community health navigator in San Francisco. A lot of my I assist people with medical, accessing medical and social services. A lot of my caseload do live in SROs in the Tenderloin, and I have a very large caseload, about 40 people. And like Eva said, it's really rare to see uh, caseworkers like herself who get to see their clients for an hour a week. And so I just wanted to point out kind of the importance of pairing preventative care and casework with the emergency services. I've really found that I have so many people I work with who this is their first time ever accessing kind of mm. case management style care. And a lot of times it's very reactionary things like APS services, things like homelessness uh, services where you really literally have to be on the street in order to get moved into housing services. So I just wanted to put that out there. That's something that I've noticed in this line of work of how very yeah. reactionary a lot of the services are. Well, and Rose, you know, we just had a listener write in with a comment, um, Patricia, that tracks directly with what you're saying. She writes, I have a son with serious mental illness who has been living on and off in so-called supportive housing in the East Bay. So granted, East Bay, not San Francisco, but but similar situation. The off periods are the periods when he is off his medication, which is most of the time. Without medication, his delusions and paranoia overwhelm him and drive him onto the streets. Supportive housing is crucial, but it must be part of a continuum of care that includes robust case management, medication monitoring and psychotherapy, social support and inpatient care when necessary. These services must be coordinated so that people are tracked throughout the system. But in our current system, services are siloed and people are lost at the transitions. Um, Lauren Hall, I wanted to ask you about this. 
when we think about the different hotels and we think about the city, how does the city assign particular people to particular hotels? And how much say do you get in sort of creating a particular community at a particular building versus not? Thank you for that call, Rose. I think that, you know, that's part of the problem is that we have, you know, we're trying to use a coordinated entry system that really doesn't have the level of uh, kind of refinement around, you know, what someone's individual needs are versus where they end up. I think that the city tries to do that, you know, and, and the levels of services are very different among different sites, not only the amenities, as we talked about with the legacy portfolio, but some sites have nursing, some sites have city paid uh, case management services. So there's theoretically a higher level of retention because they're paid more. Some sites have, you know, more of a community-based model. So I think that's one of the challenges that we're trying to wrestle with. And certainly as the supportive housing provider network, we are trying to work closely with the city on sort of how do we do a better job there and ensuring that folks end up in the sites with the services they need, but recognizing we don't have the resources to create as robust of services in every building. How can we also work on roving models? Uh, the, with Prop C funds, they've been investing in a kind of a roving model, which where people will, you know, where this onsite team can identify people with a higher level of need and get that service there. Mm-hmm. But again, there's, you know, there's some 8,000 people in supportive housing. So these models need to really be robust and expanded. And so I think there's I mean, I will say, I think there's a lot of promise. I think the uh, Prop C resources from our city, our home are going to be really important in adding new services. And we really want to see the city invest other dollars to addressing these legacy issues, because frankly, it feels like there's enough to go around. We shouldn't be having it be either or either we can do great new things or we can take care of the old. We need to do both. And so I'm really looking forward to continuing to work with uh, the city policymakers and the local community providers on how can we create a system that is responsive to the needs of folks in the moment, respects their autonomy, and leverages systems that are already out there so that we're not trying to recreate every system in housing. So how do we look at the barriers for mental health care? And and how do we kind of think about that instead of just fighting this out at budget season and having everything so politicized? There's real changes that we can be making, but they're going to take some time. A couple more uh, Oh, comments coming in. Let me, let me just get let me get to one of these comments and we can go to you, Randy. Mary writes, I worked as a nurse at a, at a supportive housing residence in the Tenderloin for four years. A significant number of the residents truly needed a level of care consistent with assisted living, which we could not provide. The location in the heart of the Tenderloin made avoidance of drug use nearly impossible. People die alone in their rooms routinely. We cared for the residents very much, but we were only there Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and the ratio of case manager to resident was insufficient to meet what were intensive care management needs. One other uh, on the same topic, in a sense, a listener writes, I'm a Department of Public Health employee who works closely with folks in SROs. We need to talk about the neighborhoods where the SROs are the most beautiful buildings, but folks are afraid to go outside. Let's be real. The neighborhoods are traumatizing to already traumatized folks. I'd like to hear more conversation about this. Go ahead, Randy. I think a point that your previous caller made needs to be reiterated. You know, when you come, my, my, both my daughters are school teachers in the San Francisco Unified School District, so I know the funding with schools, the crisis, the need for significantly more funds. But in San Francisco, in terms of getting wage equity for supportive housing employees, we have a seventy-four million dollar budget surplus, and. Roughly, I believe, and Lauren can correct me, around 16 million, which is a small fraction of that surplus, could really address the legacy mm-hmm. hotel salary issues. And so we're not, it, it, we're not, it's not like, well, there's so much money, it can't be done. No, it can be done and it could be done. Just this show that our political leadership have chosen not to do it. This year has to be different. Yeah. Yeah. And- 
I want to get to a, a Carol C. in San Francisco. Last quick call, Carol. Welcome to the show. Um, hi. So March 20th of 2021, Harvard Law Review put out a 43-page report talking about how SRO, Section 8, and HUD hires private property management companies, which in this case in San Francisco is Bridge, which is the city of San Francisco, that systematically abuse their tenants. I was a tenant in, um, in a HUD situation from um, August 11th of 2017 until I moved out um, last year, I think in, 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 in June, and I'm now living in the cab of my GMC pickup truck. Because the private property management company um, uh, um, uh, called up Adult Protective Services on me and, um, and, and like, try to get me to access that COVID fund to pay rent that I'd already paid, right? And that's mm-hmm. just, like, what I can remember. I put a lot of it behind me, right? I was a really functioning, highly, you know, I, I had a 1971 Chevy, Ford, no, Ford F-250 um, um, that was never needed, that was fully registered and everything, um, cab over camper, that I gave up for a song to go move into a place that was really abusive to me. And I'm now trying to pick up my life where I had it all left off again. You know, there, there's like, you know, there's a lot of money. A lot of times the, 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 the management companies are private property management companies that systematically get off on abusing the tenants. Okay. Hey. So, you know, and then, and then you get no one to help you. The only people that had the balls to tell me, we know that, yeah, my rights have been violated. was a tenant only housing clinic. And they're like, oh yeah, your rights have been violated. But guess what? You know what? You live in a federal building. You have no rights. You have no, you know, you you have no housing rights. You, you're not under rent control once once you become a HUD a HUD um, tenant, right? And they're yeah. like, yeah, your rights have been violated, but we get we get federal kickbacks. Therefore, it's a conflict of interest for us. Carol, thanks for for sharing your experience. I really hope you're able to find the kind of supportive housing that you need. I'm sorry that you're living in the cab of your truck, and we know that it's a situation that many people in our city have have found themselves in. We've been talking about how to make SRO hotels, supportive housing, and services for homeless people run well. We've been joined by a bunch of people from these organizations, and I want to thank Eva Donjakor, clinical case manager at HomeRise, and Ermatine Bolds, a front desk clerk uh, in a residential hotel operated by the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. Thank you both so much for, for joining the show. Dr. Kelly Ray Knight, Director of Qualitative Research at UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative, also a professor and vice chair of the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at UCSF. Thank you. Lauren Hall, Executive Director at Delivering Innovation and Supportive Housing and co-chair of the San Francisco Supportive Housing Provider Network, as well as Randy Shaw, Director of San Francisco's Tenderloin Housing Clinic and authorization, uh, author of Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America. Thank you all so much. This is obviously an incredibly complex, difficult, and important discussion for our city to be having. I'm so glad that we've been able to do it for two weeks, and I still feel like there's more to talk about. Thank you all so much for your calls and your comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.